thanks to all of you who are going to stay for our Lenten speaker series. Tonight, our speaker is Mark Serafino. Mark is originally from New Jersey. He and his wife, Valerie, uh, have been married for 38 years. They moved to St. Louis because of Mark's work. Mark and Valerie have five adult children and five grandchildren. They live in Franklin County, and they belong to um, St. Francis of um, DeSales Oratory in South City. Mark was a cradle Catholic and spent 20 years not practicing his faith. Mark plans to share his story of the men and women who helped him come back to, um, on his journey back to the church and beyond. And so the title of his talk tonight is Lent, a time for gal to be gallant for God. Thank you, Joanne. <clears throat> Good evening. A time to be gallant for God. When one thinks of gallantry, it's natural that they would think of extreme heroism, a knight with a sword, a soldier on a battlefield. And certainly, that is a sign of gallantry. But the type of gallantry that we'll discuss tonight is a different type of gallantry. I would like to walk you through the story of how did we come back to the Catholic faith? But it's not really the story of us. It's the story of the gallant people who brought us back by their words and actions over many decades. So the, the word gallant is defined as spirited, brave, nobly chivalrous, and often self-sacrificing. The title of this talk was inspired by a book. Father Mary Raymond in the 1940s published a series of books called The Saga of Citeaux, and it walks through the history of the Cistercian monks. And the very first book is entitled Three Religious Rebels, and those rebels were St. Robert, St. Alberic, and St. Stephen Harding. Frankly, I read the book too long ago to be able to tell you the story, but the mark of a, to me, an outstanding book is when you can remember one line that sticks with you for every day, every year after you've read that. And in this book, there were three lines. And the one that inspired this talk was, be gallant for God, or be nothing at all. It's pretty powerful. One of the monks' dad tells him that as he's about to enter into the religious life. At another point in the book, another dad tells his son who is going in to become a monk, never sheath thy sword. Again, very powerful. And the last statement that I remember to this day is, burn until you burn out. All three excellent examples of gallantry that we can carry with us without a sword. But if we need to, we could be ready, right? So just a little bit of background. My mom and dad were married in 1946. My dad, as my mom, were the, was the son and daughter of Italian immigrants. My mother's parents were Catholic. They had five daughters and a son. Every Sunday, the five daughters were sent to church while the parents and son stayed home. So as you could imagine, it wasn't really a very solid religious formation. 
My father's side, on the other hand, were not Catholic. They too were Italian immigrants who came to the United States and were quickly adopted by a Protestant family. And they really practiced a marginal faith, as best as I can tell, in speaking to any of our relatives. So my dad converted to Catholicism to marry my, my mom. As years went by and I grew, I was sent to a Catholic grade school. Mind you, on Sundays, my two older brothers and I went to Mass, and Mom and Dad stayed home. So, through grammar school, um, <clears throat> when I was uh, right around eighth grade, actually I looked it up, I was 13 years old when I stopped attending Mass. And I met no resistance because by then my two older brothers, they had long before me stopped. I met my wife, who was a practicing Catholic, sort of. Now let me tell you something about my wife. Valerie, who is not here this evening, she's actually, at this point, probably home holding our newly born granddaughter who was born on Wednesday. But even if she wasn't home with the granddaughter, she wouldn't be here. She's extremely shy and extremely reserved. And for her to share her story or any part of the story, would be way, way more than she would really want to dive into. But I will tell you this, that when we met, she was a practicing Catholic. And not long after meeting me and the influence that I had over her, she quickly became a non-practicing Catholic. We were married in 1984 at her home parish. And by the, between 1986 and 1993, we had three children, two girls and a boy. And while we were certainly pro-life, we've never been anything but pro-life, we were also a part of the world that said, you know, three's probably enough. And it was mentioned that I moved to St. Louis, our family, I moved our family to St. Louis for a job. And there were some really, really mystifying things that happened prior to. For example, when I came home and said to my wife, great news, we're moving to St. Louis, Missouri, she said, why? We were living in the, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. The two of us had grown up in the suburbs of New York City. Why are we going to go there? If this is for a position or a title, please don't do that. And I said, well, it is for that, but I think it's going to be better for our family. And she would ask me to explain what that was, and I said, I, I can't explain it, but just something tells me this is going to be good for our family. And, and honestly, I had no idea. Other than that, I had spent time in the region and the Midwestern way of life was much more appealing to me. And I knew that once she could experience it, it would be the same for her. So we came to St. Louis. In 1995, we moved here. By then, I had been falling away for not 20 years. I went back and checked my math. 25 years. And in 1996, we reverted and came back to the faith. So one of the things about that kind of a story is that to come up and tell you that we were fallen away Catholics, and I'm going to speak now mostly about me out of respect for my wife. I was a fallen away Catholic. I wasn't practicing, and something happened, and the next thing you know, we came back to the faith, and that's our story. And it could be successful, and it can be triumphant, except that it's really not over. 
once we came back to the church, like all of us here tonight, our battle is to stay in the faith and to stay close to God. So the story isn't really a triumph that we came back to the church. It's these people that I'm going to tell you about that inspired that. I'm going to start with my mother-in-law, Lois Ludwig. She was a devout Catholic. She prayed and sacrificed. Years after we came back to the church, we came to find out that she was wearing a scapular for each one of us who had fallen away for the church. That she would sleep on the floor. Sacrifice for us. Obviously prayer, intentions, masses, novenas. She was the backbone of faith in the family and she was instrumental in bringing us back. But she wasn't alone. So there was an event and it was somewhere around 1993 I was in a car, and this is one of those moments that you remember. I could tell you specifically where I was. I was on Interstate 95 in downtown Philadelphia with the founder of my company. And at that point in my career, I was the best salesman the company had ever had. And as we're driving along and we're doing business, he said to me, you know, Mark, I know your wife, I know your children, and he did. He knew them by name. But it occurs to me, I have no idea what religion are you? What are you? He was Catholic. And I said, well, I was born Catholic, but we, you know, we don't do religion. You don't? No. We pray. You know, I've justified it. But we pray. We say grace. And the kids say bedtime prayers. We say it with them. And he said, but don't you think your children should have somebody, a priest in their lives? And I said, why would they need that? And he said, well, what if they have a question? Something that they need to talk to somebody about. And I said, well, Barry, that's why God gave them a mother and father. They come and talk to us. I was very smug, and I knew all the answers. And he just accepted it. He just said to me, well, you know, you might want to consider someday that you might, they might need it. He said, because after all, what if they ask you a question you don't know the answer to? Now we'll fast forward. We're in St. Louis, and something came up, something very personal and very deep with a couple of our children. And when it was revealed to us, we recognized they had nobody to talk to. And believe it or not, the first thing I thought of was a man named Barry Siegfried, who was sitting with me in that car, who said, what if they have, what if they can't, you can't answer that question? Somehow, that hit me so hard because I had let my children down. So that was one thing that stuck in my mind. Then, we're here in town for maybe a month or two. We were homeschooling family, homeschooled five children, and my wife gets wind of a, a homeschool conference, and it's the Christian homeschoolers. So, okay, she's going to go to that. And she goes to the conference, and a woman walks up to her, just randomly walks up to her in line looking at books and says, are you Catholic? And Valerie's like, you know, remember I told you she's shy. She's like, um, maybe. Uh. And the woman said, listen, here's my name and my phone number, and she wrote it down on a piece of paper. And she said, if you ever need a priest, I know tons of them, call me. And Valerie, you know, very politely took the thing like, yeah, whatever. And she throws it in her pocketbook. Months later, when we had this inspiration that maybe we should go see a priest, Valerie said, we're sitting in our, room, our house. Okay, well, there's Catholic churches everywhere, but I mean, where do we go? Who do we talk to? And Valerie says, this lady, Leslie. 
months ago, she gave me her name and phone number. And ladies, I don't mean to, to assume, but if she's like most women, I would have to assume she went and did this with her pocketbook and shook it out. And sure enough, at the bottom, this little tiny piece of paper with a name and phone number was on it. And it was Leslie. So, well, I'm going to call Leslie. So I want to read this to you because when she called Leslie, she and her husband and son were praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. And on the night that she called, the intention was, today, bring to me the souls of those who have separated themselves from my church. That's pretty gallant. Leslie was very gallant. And the thing is that we don't always get to see a gift like that. But in this case, there were two gifts. The gifts that she gave us, and God gave her a special gift and said, keep doing that. Keep being Catholic and keep putting yourself out there. So Leslie did know a priest. His name happened to be Father Rafe White, right? I don't know if anyone here knows him from St. Anselm. And we went to see Father Rafe. And we had a meeting with him. And we had a second meeting with him. And Father Rafe was so easygoing. And he, you, you got the sense he knew what he had here. You know, he had big fish. So he gently talked us back into the church. And the next thing you know, on April 12th, uh, I'm sorry, April 13th, 1996, Valerie and I go to make our confession. So this is, this is um, you're, you're technically not supposed to share what your penance is when you've gone for confession. I've been told by priests, because it could indicate what your sins were. And, you know, we don't want to reveal that. But in this case, I think it's pretty obvious when I tell you what our penance was. Daily Mass. My wife was given daily mass for two consecutive weeks. I was given it for three. Now, I think that he was just being lenient on her and not necessarily, it didn't necessarily imply anything else. But that daily mass was really something that brought us instantly every day with our children to church. And before long, our three children who had not been baptized except by my mother-in-law, who when we would bring a newborn to visit, would excuse herself with the baby and come back with a smiling baby. And we knew mom just baptized the baby, conditionally, of course. So we had the three children baptized in the church. Two of them were old enough to make their first confession and their first Holy Communion. And there it happened in St. Anselm Church, still in that April. By the way, I wanted to mention something to you. Our first Mass after that confession was the next day, April 14th. Not unlike today, it was rainy, but it was a typical St. Louis rainy, meaning that when we walked into the church, it was sunny out. And in the middle of Mass, a storm came, and the storm was so violent, the doors were bursting open and closed that ushers had to go and hold the doors closed. And Valerie looked at me and said, Somebody's not happy. Huh? Like, apparently not. When we got home after Mass, a tree was completely uprooted out of the, the ground, roots and all. And we really felt that somebody was not happy. So Father Rafe doesn't just bring us back into the church. He connects dots. 
So he knows we're a homeschooling family, and he says, there's a family I want you to meet. We're going to go to their house, and we're going to meet them, and we go and meet our friends, the Martins, who are homeschoolers. And Mrs. Martin agrees to help catechize our kids. And they wrap their arms around us, and we become friends. And then, through them, we're introduced to another family, the Zivnuska family. To this day, all three families are still very, very closely entwined. We're godparents for each other's children and um, confidants and friends because Father Rafe saw that what we needed as parents, as newly returning Catholics, was we need people who would be gallant, that wouldn't be afraid to say, no, 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 you can't go back that way. No, I know you didn't sleep last night and tomorrow is Mass or today is Mass, but you got to go. And he knew just the right people to put into place that we could ask those questions who would bravely risk the, the condemnation or the anger of these new friends to get us to do the right thing. So here we are, we're going back and we're back at church on Sundays. And I started to notice things. I started to notice families. Not every family there had two or three children. Some people had more. In fact, there was one family that one Sunday I remarked to my wife, you know, I'm never sure if they're arriving or leaving. There's so many kids coming and going out of their van. They were arriving. <laughs> there were 12 children in that family. And it was, how do, we be, how do we do that? How can we possibly? Well, we became friends with that family too. And between all of the families, there were so many children, and we saw how enriching it was for our own that, um, well, we re became reopened to life, and God was, was kind enough to give us two more children uh, in the ensuing years. So um, then, in the bulletin at St. Anselm one day, it says there's a, there's a garage sale or a rummage sale at the Sisters of St. Peter Claver in Chesterfield. We're new to town. We don't know anything or know anybody. Ah, let's go to the rummage sale. And we meet the sisters who immediately adopt us to such a degree that that year at Christmas, they had us come and spend Christmas at the convent with them. And our youngest daughter, Hannah, was baptized in their chapel by Father Rafe. And the sisters taught us a joy and a love that we just hadn't been exposed to. If anybody here has ever spent time with religious sisters, it's addictive. Their joy and their love just grabs you, and you don't want to leave that. And that's what we had in the Sisters of St. Peter Claver. And we would go there sometimes in the morning for Mass. And afterwards, the sisters were always kind, and they would invite us to stay for coffee and, and pastry. And one morning when we were sitting there doing this, we're probably six months into our return to the faith, Mother Superior says, so, when are you praying the rosary? Do you do it in the morning? Do you do it at night? And we were like, well, you know, um, you know, the kids, and then the, the, we got to walk the dog, and you know, you must pray the rosary every day. That's pretty gallant. Here we are, our family, and you know, she has no idea how we're going to react to this. And she points us in the direction that every Catholic needs to be. Then I get involved in St. Vincent de Paul. 
And one of the men that I'm on call with is retired. He was, he was, he's passed. He was the owner of a very, very successful business. And his demeanor, um, well, first of all, he was bigger than me, larger. And his demeanor was pretty gruff. And we would go into homes in, in South St. Louis City, North St. Louis, really impoverished, impoverished situations. And what really struck me was this man, who was, was financially very successful, was uh, uh, in his career extremely successful, well thought of in the community. When we would go into a house, he would give me the clipboard and say, you do the paperwork. And then he would sit on a chair or on the floor and play with the children and play with them in such a way that you could see the love just pouring out of this man. And that was another lesson, the lesson of love in our faith. I was there to help. I was there to do the paperwork. But he showed me that even when you have a job, you can still love. So another very gallant person, no words, just his actions, just the things that he did, just like all of the people that I've mentioned so far. As time went on, the profound wonders of our faith were revealed more and more, entering the saints. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Rita, St. Gianna Baretta the list is endless. And with each saint we discovered, we grew more and more, and our children grew. And then our children were coming to us and telling us about the saints. Gallant for them. What child wants to tell their mom and dad something? But they're coming and they're talking to us. And this burning faith is growing leaps and bounds. Somewhere along the way, and I actually think it was Mrs. Zivnuska, introduced us to a series of books called The Liturgical Year. Now, Joanne mentioned that our family goes to St. Francis de Sales Oratory. That's where we they, they do the extraordinary form of the Mass, the Latin Mass. So I'm going to give you a disclaimer. The liturgical year, it's about 15 volumes, was written in the 1800s, mid-1800s, and it's completely focused around the extraordinary form year, so the saints, the Mass. But those books brought so much why to us. Why do they do this? Why? What is a rogation day? Why do they do this? Why do, what are ember days? Now, those are days that are not necessarily practiced anymore in the faith. But when you learn what those days are, you find yourself thinking, you know, it wouldn't be wrong to practice them. Because it's, you're, you're sacrificing, you're fasting, you're doing something to say thank you to God, and at the same time, I'm sorry. You know, when, when we were saying the stations, the line, never permit me to offend you again, is very difficult for me to say. Because I feel like a liar. Because I feel like the moment I say it, I'm about to do it. So, and I'm not, I know it's not him who's keeping me from that. But those are the things that you learn when you learn about fasting and, and almsgiving as we are in Lent. The value of that, the value of that on our souls, and that the need to continue and keep doing it. So then as we continued to meet people and be inspired by people, someone gave me a book. And the book was written by a man named Plinio Correo de Oliveira. He is the founder of the uh, Society for Tradition, Family, and Property. He was founded out of Brazil. And there are many, many books that have been written. There's much said about him. Um, 
But there's one thing that he wrote that I brought tonight that I felt really typified the discovery in our faith when you're around good people who are just gallant in their faith. So he said, when one of us is with another, it could be that we do not have an agreeable conversation. It could be that we are looking at our brother, realizing that what he has to say is not very interesting. When this happens, we should think to ourselves, God, from the heights of heaven, is looking at my brother. God sees that he is in a state of grace and delights in him. He, who is happiness itself, and who lives in the ocean of his own happiness, takes delight in seeing this man. He takes delight merely in seeing that he is good and that he is in a state of grace. He should then ask himself, who am I not to have this same delight? This would give his conversation with this boring man an element of special happiness. I never, ever thought anything like that. If I was in that kind of conversation, I'm looking to escape. I'm trying to do whatever I can to change the subject. But here's a man who writes, by the way, I never met him, who writes about how we can practice our faith in a simple conversation that we don't find necessarily interesting. Again, to stumble upon the gallantry of a man like this is a gift that we, we were given. From that, I attended a conference that the TFP had, and at the time, it was, the conference was for only men. Now, at this point in my life, as a man, as a newly returned Catholic man, and we're now four or five years into it, this is how we practice the faith. Honey, what do you think we should do? Honey, you know, or basically, I'm being Valerie. Mark, we have to pray the rosary now. Okay. Yeah. Mark, we should go to Stations of the Cross. Okay. Honestly, it's just the way I thought it was. It's okay that mom would be a leader in the faith, but I was a committed follower. And then I went to this conference, and there were about 200 men there. And what I witnessed was 200 men who didn't need mom to tell them when to pray the rosary or when to say any prayers or how to love their faith and how to love God. And there are 200 men whose names I couldn't tell you now that that example, that gallantry, really has an effect that they have no idea affected me in that way. Through the TFP, I met a man named Enrique Figelli. His name is officially Reverend Canon Enrique Fergelli. He was a priest with the Institute of Christ the King. Uh, Canon Fergelli passed away on March 1st. His story was a little bit uh, famous. You can try, he was in Africa. Uh, he built a school, uh, brought running water to the mission uh, in the jungle. He, the, the, the things he did were, were endless. And he contracted COVID and uh, through a series of complications, including the fact that he had had malaria 19 times over a very, very long period of, of rehabilitation and fighting, he succumbed on March 1st. But Canon Fragelli was such a gift because his bravery, his, his um, gallantry was 
visual. For example, we were in Italy. He was in the seminary in Italy. We went to visit him there. And we were in Florence, and we were walking through one of the large markets, if anybody's ever been there. And there was a man there selling leather goods. And Canon was looking for a, like a rosary case, a leather rosary case. And the man who was selling to us at a certain point moved his arms and it was revealed that he had a crucifix tattooed on his arm. And Canon Vergelli looked at him and said, what's that? In Italian. And the man said, well, this is my tattoo. And he said, do you pray? Do you go to church? Why would you put that on your arm? And it was just that moment. But again, there I am standing there like, oh, it's okay to do that. If the moment calls, if you're called to do it, to speak up. Now he was challenging. He had somewhat of a clerical authority to be challenging that I couldn't. But there are ways to say, hey, I notice your tattoo. What does that represent? What does it mean? Just to make that person think for a moment is a gallant moment where someone would walk away and say, yeah, why do I have that? What does it mean? So he taught us the profound beauty of the faith. When he was in seminary, every year he would write to us from seminary and give us details, expl detailed explanations of what he was learning. He would talk about the sacraments and the, the things that he was learning, and he would present them to us in a way that was so deep and so profound that you could do nothing but appreciate this. And then he was a visual example, too, that when we would visit with him, he would always connect with anybody that was in the room. I, I actually made a comment recently that from the moment he walked into a room, everyone in the room felt like they knew him all their lives. And the reason is that he was a living example of the commandment to love thy neighbor as you love thyself. And that example, that act of gallantry is so, so powerful. And I hope one day that I can even come close to imitating that in him. And then there are unheralded heroes, some of them here tonight. People whose example, just their, their, their consistency, their perseverance, that as fellow Catholics we watch and we recognize that we all have difficulties in our lives. We have family issues, we have job issues, we have financial issues, but we keep coming back and asking God and asking each other for prayer and for re reinforcements and encouragement. Those unheralded heroes are the men and women we encounter on a daily basis. They, their whole lives, they live the faith of St. Therese's little way. And really, so many of the th things I mentioned tonight, really just a practice of her little way. So I want to close tonight with a quote from St. Dominic Savio. And it's, the, the quote stands out to me because I think, <laughs> of course, he's a saint. He encapsulates in three sentences what I've just tried to encapsulate in a whole talk. Whatever you do, whatever your skills, and whatever your age. You can live your life for the glory of God. Let this inspire you to take action today. Even the smallest act for God can make huge changes in someone's life. Thank you.